Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our videocast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. Hey everyone, I'm Riley Wolford. And I'm Sean Milburn. We are the chief residents for 2019 to 2020 at the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. Welcome to our first episode of Anesthesia Learn on the Go. Many of you are familiar with our YouTube videocasts recorded by Dr. Shell and the faculty at UK. The popularity of these recordings was what prompted us to proceed with this series and continue to reach thousands of anesthesiologists at all levels of training across the world. This coincides with our departmental mission statement, which is great care for patients, great education for all. We hope that this series will offer a high-yield clinical review of topics throughout the scope of anesthesia that will be utilized as a concise learning resource for medical students, residents, fellows, faculty, nurse anesthetists, and any other interested learners. Since it's our first episode and the start of a new academic year, we chose to gear this talk toward the new residents. In the next 15 minutes, we will review day-to-day operating room workflow and highlight some basic key points about setup and preoperative evaluation. So to begin, one of the most important parts of preparing for an anesthetic is preparing a thorough preoperative evaluation. Today we will mention a broad overview of this process. Those of you interested in a more comprehensive breakdown of the preoperative evaluation, stay tuned for a subsequent episode on this topic. At UK, we are fortunate to have an outstanding preoperative clinic that sees a large percentage of our outpatients prior to surgery. This process includes triaging them into phone screens, in-person evaluations, or day-of-surgery follow-ups. These notes serve as an excellent building block for our residents to use in their construction of a preoperative plan for their patients. Often, however, supplemental information will need to be acquired prior to forming a plan. This can be found in, their, in the electronic medical record. When assembling your pre-op, make sure key information about them is known in order to help you make a safe and appropriate anesthetic plan. If any of your patients assigned to your room for the next day are currently an inpatient, the expectation is that you will visit them and perform an in-person history and physical exam the day before their procedure. This is especially valuable because you can consider any additional labs or imaging, basically any further workup that they need prior to undergoing undergoing anesthesia. All of this information, again, will allow you to formulate the safest anesthetic plan for that patient. At our institution, it is also expected that our residents contact their supervising attending the day or night prior, preferably before 7.30 p.m., to talk about the next day's cases. Try to present the important information about your patient's health history and your anesthetic plan in a concise and organized manner. Now for our listeners. This next portion of the podcast will be more interactive between the two of us. Let's talk about setting up for a general anesthetic. To begin, our first tip is to get to the OR board early and confirm your assignment. Yes, Sean, there is nothing worse than getting your room completely set up to find out you have been moved to another OR and are now on track to cause an anesthesia-delayed start to your case. That brings us to our next piece of advice, which is definitely related. Getting to the OR with a sufficient amount of time before your case starts allows you to double-check and make sure you haven't overlooked important equipment or medications you will need. Sean, how has your setup time changed throughout residency? Well, a lot. I used to get there very early in the morning. I'd be very anxious about getting set up for a relatively straightforward case. We're talking probably an hour at least before I'd head to the pre-op area. 
probably earlier than I needed to be there anyway then too. Now, not to make it sound like I fly by the seat of my pants or anything, but I get there quite a bit later for especially routine cases like we're talking about. Yeah, like Sean said, as you progress through your training, it will take less and less time to, pre- to prepare for your room, but not feeling rushed, I feel, is key to preventing mistakes. Agree. Finally, our last tip we have is you should have a tried and true method to remember and or double check yourself to make sure you haven't forgotten key parts of your setup. A popular mnemonic that many anesthesiologists use is MS Maids. Riley, do you still use that thing? Yes, yeah, Sean. I actually still use it every day. I use it when I'm setting up for just a normal case um, in the morning, a first start case. And I also use it when I'm, you know, uh, when I have a, a trauma that I have to go see. I want to make sure that I have everything set up and uh, don't miss anything. And so I use that mnemonic every, every single day. Now let's break this mnemonic down one piece at a time. Sean, the first M in the MSMA mnemonic stands for machine. Your anesthesia machine should go through a system test, also known as a self-test, at least every 24 hours. You should make sure that the machine alarms are functioning correctly. The anesthetic vaporizer should be checked to make sure they are filled. The CO2 absorbers must be inspected to verify that, it is, that they are not exhausted. You also must confirm that your machine has sufficient oxygen in its supplemental O2 canister, which is connected to the back of your anesthesia machine in case of a pipeline failure. After each case during the day, you should also run a quick leak test to ensure your machine can, can continue to hold pressure and, have develop, and hasn't developed any leaks. Sean, okay, moving on, what does the S stand for in MS Maids? So the first S in MS Maids stands for suction. Your suction is a vital piece of your equipment that you always have to have connected, tested, and functional before you take anyone back for any kind of anesthetic. In the beginning of your case, You might use it for evacuating contents from the mouth or the posterior oropharynx when you're intubating someone. Throughout the case, you'll likely often evacuate their stomach or need to suction their mouth even more, depending on your case type. Finally, at the end, before you pull their tube, you want to clear their mouth out of secretions as well. We all know there are a lot of different adverse outcomes that can happen if we don't do that, like laryngospasm, aspiration, all of those things. Riley, that's important. What's the next M stand for? So the next M stands for monitors, and there's a lot of different monitors uh, that we use. And, you know, Sean, we're going to record another podcast that will delve into the details of which monitors are required for specific types of cases and and the ASA guidelines on monitoring themselves. Um, But in this introductory podcast, we will review just the key points and make sure we don't forget something important in the setup. The first monitor that must be utilized or present in every case is a qualified anesthetic provider. While you might not always feel that way, congratulations, uh, you are that person. (laughs) Sean, what are the four main physiologic parameters that we must monitor during each case? Well, you mentioned earlier that there are ASA guidelines about this, and the four that they state in there are oxygenation, ventilation, circulation, and temperature, which must be continually evaluated. A lot of words in there. When monitoring oxygenation, the FiO2 of your inhaled gas must be both monitored and have a low limit alarm. More broadly, we also monitor the patient's blood oxygenation, most commonly with a pulse oximeter, sometimes even more detailed with an arterial blood gas, an ABG. There are a plethora of different things in that category. So, Riley, you want to talk about ventilation? Yeah. So, there's also many ways uh, during a case that we can monitor a patient's ventilation. Um, You know, we can monitor their ventilation uh, by watching for chest rise, auscultating the chest for breathing sounds, and looking for condensation in the endotracheal tube. 
However, to meet the ASA guidelines, ventilation must be continually monitored, and we, must com and we most commonly do this by way of end tidal CO2 monitoring or capnography. Also, just like when monitoring oxygenation, your system must have an audible low limit alarm for your end tidal CO2. Sean, so we've talked about oxygenation, we've, we've talked about uh, ventilation. How do we now uh, monitor for our circulation? We do it in several different ways. The most common one that we all think of, and myself included, is via the EKG. In an adult, we often have a five-lead EKG, and, and neonates or even younger kids will usually do a three-lead. You also can do this, though, with a non-invasive blood, blood pressure cuff or even an arterial line with invasive blood pressure monitoring. Finally, we don't think about it this way a lot, but your pulse oximeter also monitors that you're circulating. In order to get a plath on waveform on the screen, or even measure, uh, you know, a, a saturation with that, you have to have circulation. So those are kind of the big categories when we talk about circulation that we have in almost every case in the OR. Uh, we have one more, Riley, right? Yeah, so the last uh, physiologic parameter that you have to monitor during, uh, during a case is temperature. And per the ASA guidelines, temperature should be monitored on monitored on every patient when clinically significant changes in body temperature are intended, anticipated, or suspected. Basically, to summarize, if you think the patient's temperature is going to change, find a way to monitor it. Sure. That's also the one that I tend to forget the most in the OR, to be honest with you. I agree. Uh, so we mentioned all these monitors that are required in different ways that we can kind of check out these parameters with typical monitors in the OR. Now, I want to just elaborate and say that there are obviously many other monitors that we can use during cases, and in fact, we use a lot. Um, there are things like an arterial line, a BIS monitor, a CVP tracing from a central line, a PA catheter. One thing we don't talk about a lot is urine output in a Foley catheter. There are a ton of things. They just aren't required per the ASA guidelines. So again, if you talk about this with your attending the night before, they can t discuss all of these other monitors that are even likelihoods in a good deal of the cases we do. Moving on with our MS-made mnemonic, the next section that we need to talk about is airway. During any general anesthetic, controlling a patient's airway is crucial to getting them safely through their surgery. Having a plan, including multiple backup plans, is necessary. How you plan to control the patient's airway during your case should be discussed in detail with your attending prior to pushing medications for induction. Sean, how do you routinely prepare for this in the morning? Well, not to correct you here, but I usually prepare the night before about this when I talk to my attending. And, uh, no, I think that's definitely necessary. Right, right. And so once we talk about our plan of attack with that, I, uh, if we decide to do an endotracheal tube, I'll have multiple sizes and even types, if I anticipate it being difficult, out and ready, meaning I'll have a 6.5, a 7, or a 7.5. I usually go one up and down from what I anticipate. After I get them out, I open up my planned size, and I inflate the cuff and make sure that it's patent, and that it goes up and down easily without any problems. You don't want to put one of those things in on a prone case, not that I'm speaking from experience here, and have to continually inflate that cuff if it's blown before you even go in. After that, I check the laryngoscope to ensure that the light source on it functions properly and that it opens and closes. I kind of laugh with these because I feel like I have some sort of horror story that's happened to me at various I points. I think we all do. <laughs> right. right, in residency when it didn't work and I had to scramble. But anyway, I always make, that, make sure that the light works and that it opens and closes properly. The next thing I always do is I will put an LMA somewhere in my room for the day. If all my patients are around the same size or age, you know, I'll just keep it on top of my cart. But having that thing in a pinch is always great. Sometimes we uh, get to review the difficult airway algorithm a little more readily than we'd like to, and having that there is 
an important part of that algorithm that we talked about. Otherwise, again, on that note, it's always good to have an idea of at least where a video laryngoscope, like a glide scope, or a fiber optic tower is in case you run into that as well. It's unusual that you won't anticipate something like that coming up, but when it happens, having an idea of where that is and knowing where to send someone who's helping you is an important thing to know. Long story short, though, with the airway, I always recommend that have an idea of what your patient's airway is like. And again, if you think that there's any chance at all that you're going to need any of these things I mentioned, have an idea of where they are or have them on hand before you induce or put yourself down that pathway. Riley, we talked about airway a whole bunch. What's I again? Yeah, I just want to say, Sean, that I 100% agree with you. Um, that was great advice on the on the airway, and I uh, do the same thing on a lot of those things that you just mentioned. So um, going now back to the mnemonic, so the I uh, in MS-MADE uh, stands for IVs. So most patients, especially adult patients, should come to the operating room with IV access. Um, in your anesthetic plan, however, you should determine what you consider adequate IV access for your surgical case. Sean, how do you evaluate this um, with your attending or by yourself when you're doing your plan? Sure. So I'm kind of a Debbie Downer. I always assume that we're going to have more bleeding than I would anticipate. I can't count how many times I've heard from a surgeon or a resident saying, oh, this will be really quick, no bleeding, and, you know, EBL, you basically divide by 10. (laughs) Right, 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 whatever they tell us. So, you know, if I go into a case and I expect them to open up or do anything, I always try to have two and I say large bore, larger than a 20-gauge IV when I can, um, at least put one in after induction to account for things. If there's going to be blood loss, we want to have good access with that. Um, is the patient on any anticoagulants or are they coagulopathic? Obviously, that puts me down a different pathway than someone who's coming in for a routine outpatient procedure. Sure. Um, but other things we don't really always think about are things like, are we in an area of the body where we can't assist with hemostasis? You know, or, hey, are we going to put this person to sleep? Are they going to tuck both arms? And so then I don't have access to them if they run into bleeding. I mean, you're kind of stuck with the EJ or putting something in the internal jugular vein at that point. Um, but, but just in general, I kind of look at it like I've never really regretted having extra access yeah. on anybody that's having a surgery. That doesn't mean I put a central line in every single person. I don't <laughs> right. Don't right. mistake that. But you know, but you know I, I think that having a few IV cheaters, which you make in the morning, very important. Um, if you think there's a chance that you might need a central line, either for volume resuscitation or putting in any kind of special drugs that can't go through a peripheral IV, just having that stuff in the room and having a plan for it is really important to do. And then before they take those arms away and tuck them, if you need a second IV, don't let them put those away for positioning the patient for surgery until you are ready and you feel like you have adequate IV access. Yeah, you know, Sean, I also think that, you know, before they tuck their arms and things like that as well, I think that it's necessary you want to check those IVs to just make sure that they truly are functioning um, and they haven't been, you know, hid or they haven't uh, blown while you've been moving the patient. Um, I do, you know, here at UK there's an attending who constantly says a similar phrase, which is, you will never regret ha- uh, having extra access, but will kick yourself if you have insufficient. And I think that's great advice. All right, Sean, we are getting close to being done here. We just have a couple more sections to go over. The next section that we're going to talk about is the D in the mnemonic, which stands for drugs. Here are some basic categories of things to have prepared each day, and we will go into more detail about different drugs that you have to have available for certain cases in subsequent episodes. 
First, a large portion of patients undergoing general anesthesia require some form of anxiolysis. People are nervous. People are scared. It's a new experience for them, and so a lot of them are very nervous. And so anxiolytic medications are commonly given as pre-medications before surgery. Common medications that work very well include include, uh, midazolam or dexmedetomidine. The next drugs that you have to have available each day include some type of sedative medication. You have to have a sedative medication for both induction and for maintenance of general anesthesia. The most common sedatives used for induction um, include propofol, etomidate, and even ketamine. And for maintenance of general anesthesia, we usually achieve, um, achieve this by way of a volatile anesthetic or by an infusion, um, most commonly from, by propofol. Often when general anesthesia is performed, endotracheal intubation is often required, and to help facilitate with intubation, uh, paralytic medications are used. The most common drugs used for this include succinylcholine, a depolarizing neuromuscular blocker, or rocuronium or vecuronium, which are, are both non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. If non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers have been used during the case, this paralysis must be adequately reversed, and the patient's strength must be regained prior to extubation. The most common drugs used for reversal include neostigmine, an anticholinesterase inhibitor, and glycopyrrolate, an anticholinergic medication. Rocuronium and vecuronium are also commonly reversed now with Sigamidex, which is a selective relaxant binding agent. Finally, for a general anesthetic, supplemental medications to assist with pain management, hemodynamic support, and postoperative nausea and vomiting are often drawn up to help, to help supplement some of the side effects of both general anesthesia and the surgical procedure. Also, antibiotics are, also, are often available and if surgically indicated are given before surgical incision. So we finally made it to our last section of the mnemonic. Sean, tell us what the S stands for in MS Maids. Last but not least, the second S stands We've for special. <laughs> <laughs> so special. Basically, this means that it's the catch-all for all other things you might need for your setup. We talked earlier about the different invasive monitoring with an arterial line, abyss monitor. Basically, all of that falls into this category, though. Something like a bear hugger, an OG tube. If you're doing a cardiac case or some neuro cases, we can do cerebral oximetry. You get the idea. This is entirely case and, frankly, attending dependent based upon what you have for the day. Once you've gone through everything we mentioned earlier, including this S for special, uh, you have to walk out the door and go meet your patient. Before you do that, stop. Let's make sure you've got a few of these emergency items that we should always have in the room. Number one, your OR should always have a full oxygen cylinder that is not the one on the back of the anesthesia machine. You'll need this for transport after the case, whether the patient's intubated or extubated. We with very few exceptions, transport patients on oxygen to the recovery room. Also, every room should be equipped with both an adult and pediatric AMBU bag in case the ventilator loses power, it malfunctions, or you have to transport a ventilated patient upstairs. You should always verify that you can find somewhere in there as well a pediatric and an adult bougie. So if you're going down that difficult airway algorithm we mentioned earlier, you can get through those cords and get your tube in. Finally, the very last thing I'm going to tell you about is epinephrine. Epinephrine can bail you out in a pinch, whether it's due to hypotension and you just want a little bit of an extra kick, or even if you have something like anaphylaxis going on. I always mix that up in my room in the morning when I'm setting up for my first case and just have it sitting, stowed away somewhere in case I run into something like that. I haven't had to use it a 
ton in the past, to be honest. But when I've needed it, it's really nice to have that epinephrine diluted from the code dose that it comes in usually to just a 10 mics per ml concentration. I always keep it in my drawer or on top of my bluebell and have it as an insurance policy, though. Yeah, I think it's a great thing to always have out. Yep. So anyway, that's our mnemonic explanation. That's a setup, general, very broad overview. Uh, Again, we'll talk about these things a lot more in depth as this podcast evolves. We hope that you have enjoyed listening and that this has been helpful. And thanks again for listening to us. Yeah, good luck, guys, with your cases. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.